Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Uh, Rick, oh, I got a lot to ask you about, man. We've got, we've got uh, the ABC News hosted Democratic debate next week. You are the one apparently in charge of everything as the, as the political director. And how about those Washington Nationals, man? You know, I was at the game. I, like one of the greatest comebacks in the history of professional sports. It was a great comeback, uh, and I, 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 mean, I want to wow. fact check on whether Against John Against the Carl, New York Mets. I was at the game. I want to fact was, check as to whether he actually was there for the end of the game. But I, 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 but I, was, John, there, I was there in the ninth inning. John, you're buried, the ninth I'm inning. not going to let you slip away on that one. John, you are burying the lead here. I am actually pleased to be talking to... Lightweight debate. What, what? Lightweight reporter wait, John whoa, whoa, Carl. Whoa. Lightweight reporter. So wait a second. Let, let's let's remind our listeners what happened. Our our wait, our, our co-host here, our esteemed White House correspondent. You've gone you, off prompter here. You have. We should, we have to update people on what's going on in the news here, John. And and you you did a, a weather story over uh, uh, on Monday on Labor Day. Hey, and look, that is Ginger Z's territory. Yeah. I would not step on her toes or Rob Marciano or or any of our weather team. So as part of that. Uh, you you reminded people that President Trump had a warning for a particular southern state. Listen to this. Alabama could even be in for at least some very strong winds and something more than that it could be. So for Alabama, just please be careful also. And I guess, John, you just you pointed out that Alabama actually wasn't in the crosshairs of Hurricane Dorian, uh, wasn't likely to be impacted in any way. And you were rewarded with a presidential tweet. And, and, and let's actually let's be clear since you've brought this up. Uh, I wasn't really pointing out anything. I was just reporting on what the National Weather Service had said, which the president first warned about Alabama in a tweet. 20 minutes later, the National Weather Service uh, issued a statement saying that uh, Alabama is not in any way expected to be affected by the hurricane. Quote, such a phony hurricane report by lightweight reporter at Jonathan Carl, we'll get to that in a second, of ABC World News. I suggested yesterday at FEMA that along with Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina, even Alabama could possibly come into play, which was, capital was, true. So, John, he, he was talking about you, but he actually he actually tagged poor Jonathan Carl, the lead pastor of the South Fork Baptist Church uh, outside Louisville, Kentucky. A guy who's a big fan of duck videos, if you, if you read his uh, Twitter feed. <laughs> and, said, and ducks are very funny. But what, I mean, he, And he, he says he was the victim, quote, of a drive-by tweet. That's what he told the, the Courier-Journal. But he had good humor about this and said he was praying for everybody in the storm's path. Of course. And of course. probably praying for people in Alabama, too. Let, uh, while we're at it. So what was it like for you, John, online when you get targeted by the president like this? What, is the, what's the, what does your Twitter feed look like for the next 12 or 24 hours? Well, the, the the president did uh, correct my handle uh, about four minutes later. Uh, so Jonathan Carl uh, C A R L was only in, in in the line of sight uh, for 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 a brief period of time. You know, look, this comes with the territory, and it's fine. I mean, uh, this would not this kind of thing would never happen with any other reporter. I thought it was interesting. I, I did my report. It was um, it was a short report on World News Tonight on Labor Day. Uh, it was in the middle of the broadcast. Uh, it began with a discussion of gun control, actually, and where the president was. And then, uh, and then we mentioned the um, the hurricane. And my and the reference to Alabama was, you know, just to play the president's sound, which you did, and and to point out that the weather service had said Alabama's not. So it wasn't like the main focus of the piece. So it. Uh, was a little surprising. I the, the the president's tweet hit before you know I do my live report from the uh, from the White House, and then I leave the White House grounds to in this case go home, and 
it was shortly after I left the gate that like my phone started blowing up with. <laughs> so he's watching live and not on DVR. Pretty much. This time. I mean, yeah, it was yeah. it was it was it was pretty much in real time. Yeah. Well, that's that's uh, that's an interesting. Well, you you yeah. mentioned guns though, John, and that has been a big story in the wake of the Midland Odessa shootings over the weekend in August, yeah. ending in that tragic way in Texas, like it began. Congress is now coming back in a couple of days. The president has again, been all over the map on this. What are you hearing in terms of what he might support, what he's likely to support? Um, as we know, Congress, uh, Mitch McConnell's made clear this is only going to happen if the president wants it to happen. Well, uh, McConnell has said that because he says he doesn't want Congress to go through the the uh, measures of passing something and then see the president not sign it. Uh, what I'm told at the White House is the president is actively working, his team is actively uh, working on a package to deal, uh, legislative proposals to, to, to deal with this issue. Uh, I, they, no, no, nothing firm on what will be included. I think that if, if we go through some of the things that he's talked about, clearly the mental health issue broadly is something uh, that he brings up all the time. There's the question of these red flag laws and could it be something be done nationally to encourage that, uh, the states to do that. We have, uh, you know, he has talked about imposing the death penalty, uh, federal death penalty and streamlining uh, the, uh, the, the process of that on cases of mass shootings and hate crimes. Um, and then Rick, there's the there's kind of the big question, which is the question, one of them, of, of background checks. And if you remember, back on the first week of August, he said this about expanding background checks. There's a great appetite, and I mean a very strong appetite, for background checks. And I think we can bring up background checks like we've never had before. I think both Republican and Democrat are getting close to a bill on to doing something on background checks. But then... Uh, just a few weeks later, uh, the, the president, uh, speaking after uh, the, uh, uh, the the Texas shooting, had this to say. Well, we're looking at a lot of different things. We're looking at a lot of different bills, ideas, concepts. It's been going on for a long while. Background checks, for the most part, as strong as you make your background checks, they would not have stopped any of it. So that, that's him right after the Odessa shooting, seeming to throw cold water on the idea of background checks. We know uh, he's also been talking to Wayne LaPierre. It's unclear if they're willing to really do anything that would that would go up against the NRA. I think that this president could uh, do that without any any real uh, – I mean because it's not like they're going to go support somebody else. It's not like they're suddenly <laughs> going to support that guy from Texas that swears all the time. I mean they're, they're not – they're not going to jump to another candidate. Uh, he would have the cover on this, um, but I, you know, my sense from those in the kind of campaign world um, on the Republican side is they is that they, they see a zero they see zero benefit of the president coming out and 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 moving ahead with measures that the president the NRA is opposed to. Yeah, could he get it done? I think that's I think yes. I think he this would. is this is a president who has told the Republican Party that it should think differently than it has for decades on issues like trade and foreign policy. He could tell them that they believe differently now on guns, particularly I mean to to use his formulation here about nothing having stopped the the revelation this week and our our colleague Matt Gutman broke the story that 
that the, the shooter in the Midland Odessa attacks was someone that was denied a gun through the front door, through a regular background check at a, at a commercial vendor at a gun store, but then bought it through a private sale. Because so there it were appears no, actually was able to use the loophole. That's right. Exactly. Precisely the loophole. We're going to talk to a, a, a former senator who was involved in, in this issue in a high-profile way in, in a few minutes, John. But I do think uh, Mitch McConnell, for all the, the flack he's taking on on this, uh, is, is speaking – uh, a tr- an essential truth about the legislative process under Trump, which is the votes aren't there until or unless the president says they are. And he has to move. He is the he is the wild card here. He is the unknown in this equation. We talked to Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut last week before the shootings in Midland Odessa. He's still relatively optimistic about something. It is the ball still is in the president's court. And and like I said, I, I've talked to senior officials about this just in the last several hours. And uh, they say that they're working on something, cannot give me anything specific, I think because they don't know until the president finally says <laughs> this is where it's going to be. Uh, but we will have to see. But Rick, so we'll talk about that with, with our guest. Um, but before we take our, our first break here, I, I do want to come back to the Democratic debate. We are now, we've got, we've got 10 names, 10 Democrats. Uh, you are in charge of everything, as I understand, as the, uh, as the political director at ABC News. Um, what, what, are we, what are you looking for here? Well, the fact that we have all these firsts, that it's the first time that everyone's on one stage and the first time that you have a dramatically smaller field, the first time after Labor Day, I think all of that has first a lot. First time to... Warren and Biden are on the same Oh, is stage? that true? Yeah. Wow, I, I, think, I, think you, I think you may be right about that. I, I think – look, there, there's a lot of big clashes that have been looming just in the wings for the Democratic Party and Warren and Biden uh, just seem to be on a bit of a collision course these days. And uh, you can hear it. Uh, senior Biden officials have been already talking to say they were reminding they're reminding reporters just just the other day that actually this is a 10-person debate not a two-person debate just in case we forgot because of the way the expectations have gone and and listen to this this is elizabeth warren on labor day uh, making the case uh, in new hampshire about why she is the best choice to beat donald trump i think what's going to carry us as democrats is not playing it safe it's not pretending that everything was just fine and then there's this one problem and we get rid of that one problem, it's all going to work out. Because it's not. It's not. We have problems going back decades now. And they are big structural problems. And nibbling around the edges or pretending they're not there is not going to make them go away. So that one problem that she's referencing is clearly Donald Trump. And, and so I don't know how you listen to that and, and don't think that she is describing the current frontrunner for the Democratic nomination in Joe Biden. It's interesting because I listened to that soundbite. I did not hear the words Joe Biden. I didn't hear the words Donald Trump. But you got to listen careful, I, John. I think, you got you to listen. Like I think you're right. No, I, no I, I do think you're right. It's, it's one of these. It's very, very subtle. It's like mm. that. You know, like the old advertisements, you know, they, they would sneak <laughs> little hidden messages in there. Yeah. No, uh, no, it, it, it's going to be fascinating. The question is, is it is it is it gang up on Joe Biden or is it I mean, what this is this will be an interesting thing. I yeah. Mean, and, and I think for the, for a number of candidates that are glad to have made it to sort of sort of this round of the the Democratic primary, people that, that no one thought would be on the stage, like Andrew Yang, who's moving closer to the center of the stage, by the way, people who really barely made it in, like Julian Castro, uh, A.B. Klobuchar, uh, who's one of the lower ranking. It's an opportunity for them, but there's diminishing opportunities. Uh, and I, I assume they're all going to go in with a strategy. I'm also 
really excited to get down to Houston because it's Houston, which is the center of so many of the raging debates inside the Democratic Party around race uh, and uh, immigration, around climate change. Uh, and uh, it happens to be the, the home state in Texas of, of two candidates will be on that stage, a state that has been in the news quite a lot recently for a lot of bad reasons. Well, we are ready, and I will see you in Houston. Uh, we have to take a quick break. We will be back with our guest. All right, welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by Senator Heidi Heitkamp, also now an ABC News contributor. Senator Heitkamp, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, John. Got a, a lot we want to talk to you about. We wanted to check in with you um, about, the, uh, the, the obviously, the uh, Democratic primary in advance of the ABC News debate coming up in, in Houston. Uh, but also, uh, and before we get to that, um, I, I wanted to talk to you about an issue that is um, sure to get a, a lot of uh, play in Capitol Hill over the next uh, few weeks, and that's the question of, of – of gun safety, of dealing with mm-hmm. the mass uh, uh, shootings uh, that we have now seen, really what appears to be an epidemic of, of mass shootings. And we are told now that the president is working on a, a proposal to deal with this. Uh, Mitch McConnell is saying he's waiting to get his cue from the White House about uh, what they you know, will or will not uh, bring up. Um, and the president himself has been kind of all over the map on, on one, of the, one of the central issues here, which is the question of expanded background checks. And I just wanted to get your sense, because you have a unique position on this. You are, mm-hmm. you know, you're obviously a Democrat. You, you, you served in the Senate. You were one of five Democrats to vote against the Manchin-Toomey bill, which would have expanded background checks. And you, and you are a, a Democrat that, um, uh, you know, has strongly supported gun rights. So where, where do you see this going? Well, I think uh, Odessa changed kind of the dynamic because for all for every one of the shootings, the background check bill would not have prevented the shooting. Now, for the first time, we have a private sale or a known private sale of a weapon that was used in a mass shooting. And all of a sudden, the argument of, you know, why are we focused on background checks, given the fact that none of that would have made any difference in any of this gun violence that we're seeing. Odessa Midland changed that dynamic. And I think that it's interesting to watch, um, as, as, as is always true, given it was recess, the idea is that the further we get away from an event like El Paso, the further a tragedy like El Paso, the more it, it, it ebbs in people's memory. Odessa has brought it to the front again, coming into the return of, of the Senate. And, and, you know, if I know Chris Murphy, if I know any of the senators who have been leaders on the gun debate, they are going to be there in mass every day. I think that the families of the Sandy Hook children, all of these people are going to be in, um, in Washington um, in a way that they haven't been there before because they feel, and I think it's true, that the political winds are changing, that even within the Republican Party, there is a demand for some kind of reaction, and it can't be anemic. It can't be just grassly Cruz. I, I saw Senator Cruz today saying, well, let's fix the Instacheck system. He's right. It needs to be fixed, and it needs to be better calibrated. But we also need red flag laws. We also need laws that prevent uh, trafficking and straw purchases of guns. We need a better 
um, uh, enforcement mechanism. Take a look at Chicago. Those guns are coming from Indiana. They're coming from all over the country. How do we stop the influx of those guns and how do we prosecute that? And so I think there's going to be a whole lot of discussion points. Probably the most dangerous thing that I see, and you're going to see the other lobby, which will be the mental health lobby, come out and be very active, I think, in opposing this idea that this is this is all people with mental health challenges. Um, and the one thing I would caution everybody when you say, OK, we're going to take away uh, guns from people who have a mental health challenge in a state like North Dakota. If you're prone to depression, if you have a mental health challenge and, you know, going in and getting a prescription, going in and getting treatment will eliminate your gun rights. I will tell you many people won't seek treatment for their for their mental health challenges. So we have to be really careful. Red flag laws are not anti-mental health. What they are is helping families who see, oh, my goodness, my, my kid could do this or my neighbor could do this, giving them an outlet to have that discussion with law enforcement. And we saw um, events being prevented by neighbors and people engaging, saying um, these are dangerous people. So I think the debate is going to be very wide-ranging. And I think it is pathetic that Mitch McConnell has said, I'm waiting for the president. He is the leader of the United States Senate. I I mean, in in any other context, it it simply uh, restates the obvious, which is that he is no longer the leader of the Senate. He is a political leader who could care less about the Senate doing its job. Well, it's interesting you hear um, uh, from White House officials almost the flip side of it, which is, uh, they're saying, as the president, they say, is working on putting together whatever his proposal is going to be. We can imagine some of what would be in there. I, he, he, I'm sure the red flag uh, 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 question will be in there. I, I'm sure he's, uh, you know, the, the idea of, uh, of of expediting the death penalty uh, uh, cases regarding mass shootings and, and hate crimes. Um, who knows whether or not there'll be background checks in there. But what you hear from White House officials is the president doesn't want to propose something that cannot pass. Uh, so he's trying to get all the stakeholders on board. And this is McConnell saying, uh, you know, it's a waste of time for us to pass something the president won't sign. But it's like, but nobody so far is actually doing anything. Well, you got to remember that McConnell's been burned by the president before. I mean, the president's saying we want to do something for the DACA kids. And McConnell puts it on the back, puts it on uh, on the floor. Number one, it doesn't pass. The president's proposal was the one that got the least number of votes. But then the president pretends it's not his proposal. I mean, the president's been pulling the rug out from underneath McConnell. And McConnell says, look, we've got vulnerability in my caucus. I'm not going to make those folks walk the plank unless they have the protection of the president. I mean, the president has not hesitated to criticize Republican members when it's to his political advantage to do that. And I think McConnell ultimately is protective of his own power base, which is the majority in the Senate. But, you know, at at a bottom line is this this failure to assert any kind of leadership within the Republican Party. No, you go first. No, you go first. It is pathetic. And, and um, you know, I don't know what it's going to take over there. I just and, and maybe I romanticize John McCain too much. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'd always assume if John were there, he would say enough. This is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to pull people together. Usually Susan Collins plays that role. What role is she going to play in this debate? 
I don't know. And so I'm looking for those leaders like Lisa, like Susan, like um, maybe even Toomey, although I think Toomey's always been lukewarm. I think it's been more of a political move than an ideological move for him to be part of the background check bill. But but where is the leadership below McConnell that is pushing it within the Republican caucus? I don't know. Typically, when these things move forward and, and there's a workaround around Mitch, it's because there's enough built up you know, pressure on him from from caucus members. And Senator, meanwhile, the, 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 the people who are looking to become the next round of leaders, the 2020 Democratic contenders, it, it seems almost a, a, a predictable march to the left around this. I mean, you see a lot of talk now about uh, mandatory gun buybacks, uh, about uh, a, a national gun registry. You've got uh, Senator Senator Harris, among others, saying, well, look, if Congress doesn't act, I'm just going to I'm going to act. I'm going to have executive orders around these things. Uh, of course, President Obama tried a lot of that as well. What's your sense of how this is being shaped through the lens of 2020 and how it might play out uh, next week at the debate on ABC? Well, I think there's going to be a huge march to the left. And, you know, one of the things that that um, gets it gets a gets the backup of the the kind of far left is when you say, okay, are you describing an assault weapon based on what it does or based on how it looks? And and when people say that's not a legitimate debate, it clearly is a legitimate debate because if if uh, if you live in in a state like North Dakota or South Dakota, um, people really understand firearms and they understand how things can be modified, whether it's a shotgun or whether it is, you know, an AR-15, you know, which one could do more destruction. Uh, you know, so, so I think there is a legitimate debate where people need to educate themselves on firearms. But because it's been such a taboo, we don't get kind of solid thinking around uh, legislation and around definitions. And then there's this big rush to say, who can be more extreme on guns? And I think that's the wrong direction, because if you can't explain how your action is going to prevent gun violence, instead of simply, you know, infringe on the Second Amendment, you're in a bad spot. And I think that's why I said it's significant that in Odessa, this was a gun bought in a private gun sale, a casual sale as opposed to from a licensed firearm dealer, because now for the first time, that argument has gone away. And so I think it's really important that we have a broad-ranging discussion, and I think simply running to the left isn't going to do it. You know, and I want to mention something. Andrew Ross Sorkin did an article in December, which I think everybody should read. It's about the indications that you can find through the financial system. You know, what are they buying on credit card? How many credit cards are people taking out? And how do we, how could we track that in, in, in real time to identify someone who is plotting and planning something horrific? You know, because he went back and looked at all these shooters. There's an idea that hasn't surfaced. Um, there's an idea where we haven't we haven't seen this collaboration with with gun sellers that can be extremely important. One of the things that happened yesterday um, uh, with with Walmart is Walmart also offered to provide um, their internal analysis on how they decide whether they're going to sell a gun or not. That is pretty sophisticated, and it could be very, very helpful to small uh, licensed farm- firearm dealers. And so to me, when you can sit down with a gun owner, somebody who understands guns, and explain how each one of these steps could in fact prevent 
a horrific event like Sandy Hook, a horrific event like um, what happened in El Paso, then gun owners are willing to say, yeah, that makes sense, and that's not going to be too intrusive on me. But, you know, in states like North Dakota and South Dakota and Wyoming, you know, they would say, look, we're not, we're not states that have this problem, although they could, and let's admit that. So why are you restricting what we think? And and if you're the mayor of, of Chicago, you say, because your guns end up on my street. So more broadly than guns, I'm curious your take on how the field is developing. We now have only 10 candidates in one night at the debate next week in Houston. Uh, this is a this is a field that is winnowed. It's also winnowed you know, along certain ideological lines. There isn't much of a center left in the party, at least uh, among the, the folks who will be on that debate stage. What is your sense of what kind of uh, image that conveys? And do you feel like uh, the party is ready to, to have this kind of dramatic move where there really are only 10 and not 20 Democratic contenders? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that people... Um, who are now in that spot to be part of the decision-making group, i.e. Democrats who go to uh, vote in a primary, Democrats who go to caucus. You know, they are anxious to get it to a manageable level. They're anxious to have fewer choices. You know, it's interesting because there's been huge sociological um, uh, studies done that when people have too many choices, they don't make any choice. And so I think I don't think that that the um, DNC is wrong to want to at least get down to a manageable level. I think that what's going to be interesting is how does Andrew Yang, uh, uh, you know, when he when there isn't as much noise and he has a chance to legitimately present his ideas, does he get more attention and are people more willing to go, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, what what happens with um Castro. What happens, you know, to me, the, the, the opportunity and the confusion is going to come with what I would call the B-listers on that stage. Are they going to actually catch more fire from people who have looked at Biden, who have looked at Bernie, who have looked at Elizabeth, who have maybe considered Kamala or, or uh, Booker, and I put them kind of on the cusp, are they going to say, well, that Amy Klobuchar, she makes a lot of sense. I think I'm going to going to learn more about her. And so it really helps. Narrowing the field really helps those people who are polling below 5% to maybe catch a little bit of more attention than they would if they were standing with 20. Well, we'll be talking a lot more with you about this going in, into the debate. Uh, it, it, it does seem uh, that some of those who I would have associated more of like the Heidi Heidkamp wing of the party are not going to be on uh-huh. that stage. Uh, you know, I, I think well, like I, a... I, John, I would love it if John Carl were on the stage. Not John Carl. I'd love hey, it hey, no, that would be interesting. Uh, yeah, you know? yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, but but I would I would love it if Michael Bennett were on the stage. I would love it if um, uh, Bullock were on the stage. You know, obviously uh, uh, Tim Ryan, I think, has an interesting perspective, and you know, from a blue collar, truly blue collar Democratic kind of background, Michael Michael tends to be you know, economically conservative. And I think that's a real advantage. Uh, you know, Bullock understands all of these other things. and But I think not being on the stage, you know, kind of without something dramatic happening for them is going to make it very difficult for them to continue um, uh, in that lane. And, and I think a lot of moderates have put all their eggs in the Biden barrel, right, saying, look, he's, he's eventually there. 
Um, but I think there also is an opportunity for, again, Amy Klobuchar. I mean, right. I, Amy, Amy and I haven't agreed on everything, but she's, she's pretty common sense, uh, get things done. We've got to compromise if we're going to move forward. Um, she's been one of the most effective uh, senators identified by bills that she's been able to pass. This gives her a chance to um, really show a little bit uh, more of what, what her attitudes are and her ideas are. I mean, I would take, I, ideologically, I would take everybody who's for Medicaid for all and, and put them over on one side. And, you know, Kamala has been kind of, in, you know, has feet on either side of that because she keeps saying I'm for private insurance, but I'm not for private insurance. And then put everybody who's not for Medicaid for all on the other side and then take a look at that division. All right. Senator Heidkamp, thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. We'll talk to you again soon. You bet. Thanks, John. All right, uh, Rick. So all the eggs in that Biden basket for the uh, for the moderates. It's it is funny to see how things change. That suddenly Barack Obama's vice president would count as, as the, the moderate. raging moderate in the field, <laughs> and Amy Klobuchar again, pretty progressive on most issues, would would be to the to, certainly to the right of center, maybe to the right of almost everyone else on the stage, given the way things break down. And, and I think she's right in pointing out how the gun debate reveals that. Uh, Senator Heitkamp pointing out that there is a there is a march to the left in the response to this, that there are areas where the Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp type Democrats might uh, might see common ground. That isn't really where the 2020 campaign is, is pointing any directions. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we do our next edition of Powerhouse Politics from Houston, uh, the uh, the venue for our ABC News debate. That's a great idea. John. You think Trevor will be on board with that? I can't wait to get down there. All right. Okay. All All right. right. We've got him. All right. That is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. We will be back next week from Houston. Thank you to our entire Powerhouse Politics team, including Avery Miller and uh, the great uh, Trevor Hastings. We will be back next week. 